1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking with Dr. Tom Haynes-Doran about his book titled Derailed! How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways, which I can tell you as a resident in the United Kingdom, is a problem that needs solving. And thankfully, this book just out from Manchester University Press is incredibly helpful in explaining why Britain's railways are in such a state. So Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us um, to talk about your book.
2: It's a pleasure, thank you.
1: Could you please introduce yourself a bit and explain why you've decided to write this book?
2: Uh, I, I was studying uh, railways uh, for a number of years um, through my master's and PhD programmes. It came from a quite political perspective. I was interested in, um, I guess, the, the development of public policy in general um, and what's commonly termed as neoliberalism. So obviously that, that means the proliferation of privatisation and markets in, in public policy. Uh, and I was particularly interested in railways anyway, coming from a family um of my dad was a railway worker um so we we were sort of we didn't have a car and we went everywhere by train so it became quite close to my heart as a subject and it, it's one that i thought was interesting politically um especially for reasons like most people seem to want it to be renationalized but no government seemed to be willing to propose that at the time um and so i did this phd and i did some academic journals. But I wanted to write something for for railway passengers, because I I felt that sort of really, if anything is going to change, and it's going to have to involve the passengers who are really suffering and have done for a long time. Um, So I wanted to write a book to them and and a book that you can read on the train on, on the way home.
1: Well, I think you've definitely succeeded in that. Um, I would note for listeners that this is an incredibly readable book, um, as well as being heavily researched. Um, It is actually readable on a train um, and would definitely recommend for that purpose. Um, And you structure the book in a number of questions, which is quite helpful for kind of getting to the root of the number of problems that from the beginning kind of seem like they're too complicated to understand. So I'm going to take us through some of those questions. First off, why have the trains become so much less punctual?
2: Okay, so punctuality. Um, obviously, um, we're mostly talking about trains being late, but there's there's a lot of cancellations too. It's it's not referred to as punctuality it's referred to as reliability but that's just um sort of getting into the semantics of it uh, a bit too much fundamentally we're talking about you know is, is the train going to get you home when you expect it to um, and that that has um severely uh decreased um punctuality severely decreased since privatization um and that's not to say that you know actually most trains are on time but it's it's the it's the train that makes you late for the really important appointment or a wedding or a christening or something like that that that's the one that you remember and quite rightly so um so the the reason why punctuality uh, has decreased over the period since privatisation of railways in the mid-1990s. It's complex, um, but the the main reason is um, that there are more people wanting to travel. That's not just on the railways, that's in all forms of transport. Uh, And so uh, the private companies that that run services um, started putting uh, more and more trains on the track, Uh, and that wasn't met by an improvement in or expansion of um, the infrastructure necessary to run those services. Um, And obviously, that means there's more trains on on using the same infrastructure. There's more likely to be delays and a delay to one train, say, a passenger falls ill or something like that. Um, When you don't have lots of spare capacity, it's a bit like when there's disruption in flights, and it has all these knock-on effects. It's quite similar in the railways, where a delay in uh, the southwest of England can later in the day actually cause a delay in the, the northeast of Scotland. Um, but the reasons for the uh, lack of adequate infrastructure are deeply embedded in, in, the, in the failure of the privatization project. So, uh, Whereas British Railways, the state-owned company that ran the railways until the mid-1990s, uh, ran that infrastructure the the tracks the stations etc for the public good uh, not for profit uh, that was sold to a private company called Railtrack, who had shareholders and was floated on the stock exchange uh, and they they were in charge of that infrastructure for the first around four or five years of, of the privatized network uh, and in that time they explicitly had a corporate policy of using the, the money they got from taxpayers and, and from the train companies that ran the services uh, to reward their shareholders over and above the maintenance of a safe network. Uh, and the, the net result of all that was uh, lots of cracks and breaks in the infrastructure. And that led to a crash in the year 2000 at Hatfield in Hertfordshire. Uh, And that that exposed really the dangers of the network that privatization had created. Um, And then the new Labour government, who was in power then, um, had to do something to fix that infrastructure, um, which was going to cost a lot of money, several billions of pounds. And so they created another company called Network Rail, which instead of using government money, borrowed huge amounts of money off the international financial um, markets. It was really a scam by the New Labour government to borrow loads of money without it being on the government's balance sheet. Uh, But the EU uh, in 2014 um, called them out on that, called the British government out on that. And £34 billion of borrowing was reinserted into the government's balance sheet. Um, To give your listeners some idea of the scale of that, that's around half of the uh, mini-budget that has just brought down the, uh, the UK Prime Minister. Um, so uh, since 2014, there's been no private finance to pay for the costs of uh, the infrastructure, and it's all been government money. And that that requirement of government money, the subsidy required, has ballooned massively as a result of all that wastage. And so it costs a lot more now to provide uh, that infrastructure and services that that people rely on. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, basically, the story is successive governments not really wishing to finance or sorry to fund the railways properly, and looking for private finance solutions, which in the short term have saved them money, but in the long term have built up massive costs to the uh, taxpayer. Uh, and haven't significantly improved the infrastructure and nowhere near enough to the extent where we've got double the amount of passengers um, before COVID using the network than, than uh, at the start of privatization. Um, so the main reason the trains are late is, is, a, is a series of failures by successive governments to properly invest in the infrastructure.
1: Which is a fascinating answer because if one's on a platform or on a train and there's delay, quite often the reason given is a lack of drivers. Literally, the people driving the train, there aren't enough of them. Um, How much of that is sort of related to the problems you've just described? Why aren't there enough drivers?
2: That's, that's, another, that's another problem, too. Of course, these, these problems compound, like I say. So if so a train is uh, delayed by a lack of a driver, then the lack of capacity in the network causes other delays <laughs> elsewhere. Um, but the lack of driver issue is, is again, uh, related to the, this system of privatization that was installed nearly uh, 20 years ago now. Um, and that was um, to have private companies bidding for government contracts for the right to run services um and those government companies so, so those contracts would be they started off about 5 to 7 years and they've got a bit longer but they they're relatively short term contracts uh and we we must remember that the whole purpose of privatization initially was to try and save money even though british railways by historic standards was uh, using fairly low amount of public subsidy, around £2 billion a year in today's prices. By the way, it's a lot more than that now. Uh, upwards of, um, it's it's came towards £20 billion a year during COVID. But even before that, we were looking at about £12 billion a year. So subsidies increased massively as a result of privatisation. Uh, but these private companies... How did they compete with each other for these contracts? Well, it was mostly to say, because it was a money-saving exercise, we will run those services for less money than another private company is prepared to do so. Um, And so the idea is the net effect of all that competition would be to reduce the subsidy. Um, But those private companies, like I say, didn't own the infrastructure. They didn't even own the trains they were running. They still don't. And those were hired from other private companies called rolling stock companies. The the train operating companies, um, only only sort of asset, if you like, are their staff. So when they're saying uh, to the government, we are going to um, cut costs more than the other people uh, who are competing with us, um, that can only be done on the basis of uh, cutting staff costs. Uh, And that's led to a lot of the strikes and stuff that you can see at, at the moment, but uh, with drivers, um, the difficulty with them is, unlike some other railway staff, they're not easy, easy to replace. Uh, they take a long time to train up. People think that you just push a button and the train drives itself. Well, that's not true. There's a huge, long training period. Uh, the drivers have to know the routes intimately that they're using. It's not like driving on the motorway. You have to know the route like the back of your hand. Uh, And so for these private companies on these short-term contracts, um, they found it easier to steal drivers from other companies than to um, do training of drivers themselves. What's the point in investing in all that training if you're not going to see the return because your contract is so short? Um, so they started poaching drivers from other companies. And this is why drivers pay went, went up quite significantly um, without properly investing in, in what would be an uneconomically um, w- wouldn't make sense economically uh, to, to invest in the training of drivers. The net result of that has been a, a long term and widespread national driver shortage. Um, and so when they say there's not, uh, enough drivers that's because they're, they're relying on drivers to work extra hours because they don't have enough of them and that that goes back to this short-term cost saving um that privatization installed nearly 20 years ago
1: mm. fascinating how that's sort of related to and compounding as you said um some of the earlier issues as well Um, To get then to another one of the key questions that you raise and very helpfully answer in the book, why are ticket prices, why are fares so high? And what perhaps pretty straightforward sounding fixes might you suggest?
2: Um, The most obvious answer to that is that industry costs increase um, dramatically. Uh, And the the governments have um, pushed a lot of those increased costs onto passengers. Um, But this was a deliberate decision. It it isn't just an analysis that I've made of, you know, documents. This is actually explicitly being said by governments what they're doing. So after the Hatfield crash, and I I mentioned earlier the huge increase of costs um, as a result of that, the government needing to fix the infrastructure and needing to find billions of pounds. Uh, The new Labour government under Tony Blair said, well, historically, um, passengers have paid about a third of the costs of running the railways and the government's uh, paid two-thirds of those costs through subsidy. We're going to switch that around so that the passengers now have to pay two-thirds of the costs and the government only one-third. And that's within, if you like, the growing pie of uh, industry costs. So that's all relative terms rather than absolute. Um, but it was you know, a government policy. Uh, the government regulates half the fares, and um, the the private company set the other half, but the government regulation of fares sets a benchmark uh, and they deliberately increase those fares above and beyond inflation over many years. And so the net result is that since privatization, uh, fares have increased by about 40% overall. Um, So that's the simple answer, you know, the the, the costs went up um, and the government decided that it wanted passengers to bear a lot of that pain. Uh, and each successive government has supported that. Um, but there's another, there's another angle to this, uh, in that around the same time, uh, there were protests by uh, farmers and by the road haulage industry over what was called the fuel duty escalator. Uh, that relates to um, automobile and car uh, fuel tax. Uh, And that that had its origins in the United Nations Rio Summit in 1992. This is where the world leaders got together uh, and said, my goodness, this climate change thing is real, isn't it? We really have to do something about it and start cutting emissions very quickly or we're in a big uh, load of trouble. And the previous government, the Conservative government before New Labour, as a result of that, introduced higher taxes on fuel duty, recognising that transport uh, at the moment, and I think it was probably still then, uh, actually it probably wasn't because of uh, we had a lot of coal-powered uh, f- um, power stations, but the, uh, the transport sector is one of the highest emissions in terms of CO2 emissions, and automobiles are the largest sector within that. So, they said we have to uh, really reduce the amount of um, car driving, and the way we're going to do that is put a fuel escalator in. Quite similar to the increase in rail fares, in the sense they said every year there's going to be a percentage point increase in um, what it costs to fill a tank up. And New Labour inherited that, but because of those protests, they, they dropped it. Um, So a big protest movement that shut the country down um, in in significant ways. Um, Since that, so that's uh, around 2002, every successive government has uh, reduced in real terms fuel duty Um, to the extent that um, there's been something like a 20 billion pound shortfall per year in today's money uh, in terms of the government. Uh, and what they receive from fuel duty. And as I I say in the book, uh, if you add together, um, I I take pre-COVID figures because the COVID years, last couple of years have been a bit abnormal. But in terms of pre-COVID figures, if you look at the uh, total income of the railways from passengers, uh, and you look at the total income from bus passengers, when you add them together, that's less than the amount um that the government would have received if it kept fuel duty at the same level over over those years so effectively we could have free public transport if the government hadn't made all those de- successive governments hadn't made those decisions to cut fuel duty so one of the reasons why fares are so high is not only uh have passengers been made to pay for the failures of privatization they've also been subsidizing um cutting costs for motorists
1: Mm. And how might we fix some of these problems with fair prices?
2: Well, there's, um, the, the fair prices, like I say, uh, are a result of um, needing to spend more money on the railways because of privatization. Um, there, there, there needs to be more government money put into the railways and not through Ponzi private finance uh, solutions like they've tried before, because that obviously doesn't work. There's no way around that. Uh, If we want to reach uh, net zero, if we want to do it in a fair and sustainable way, um, then we're going to have to reduce rail fares. It's uh, not sustainable to have, uh, for example, if you turn up at Manchester Piccadilly Station, on a weekday, and you ask for a return to London in the morning, you'd be paying about £369. Now, no one in their right mind thinks that that's a sensible price, uh, but that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the rail fare So the, the fares have to come down, and the money has to come from somewhere. The only reasonable uh, place it can come from is, is from taxpayers' money. Um, so it, it goes to a question of uh, whether the railway should be... Uh, publicly funded? And, and what level is the right level? Um, and where's that money going to come from? Well, you know, uh, taxes for the, the highest earners in our society, if you look back over the past, uh, since the Second World War, are very low levels and compared to other countries. Um, and of course, there's the issues of tax avoidance and all the rest of it. So, you know, that money is going to have to come from the people who already have lots of money. It can't come from anywhere else.
0: Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com/wonder so to what extent given that there's such an issue with government funding um, there's limited ways places where the money can come from is as you mentioned earlier is public ownership is renationalization the answer
2: well, um, renationalisation um, is a necessary but insufficient condition for, for fixing the railways. Uh, any solution that involves the continued uh, and significant uh, involvement of the private sector in the railways, all it does is take that um, money from uh, fair payers and that money from taxpayers and use some of it to reward Uh, shareholders or the owners uh, of private bonds uh, who themselves contribute nothing um, to the railways. So it's a loss-making industry uh, and having private involvement in a loss-making industry only serves to increase the industry's costs uh, and therefore the amount of money that we as taxpayers and and people who buy train tickets have to put into it. but it's it's not enough just to have a publicly owned railway in terms of what railway system we need. Um, we have to think about uh, the climate emergency and we have to think about growing levels of inequality which uh, um, have uh, manifested themselves in in something called transport poverty. Uh, and in a lot of parts of the UK now, um, life is impossible without a car and yet, 20% of the of adults don't have access to one. And of those people, um, most of them are in the poorest and in, um, lowest in income brackets. Um, so there are people being, the swaves of the country and population being completely excluded from public life by lack of transport options. Um, and that goes to uh, questions about buses, uh, most fundamentally, but also trains as well, because trains form... Um, an important function within the public transport system so we're gonna have to we can we have to answer the question which successive governments have failed to answer which is what are the railways for we're spending a lot of money on them as, as taxpayers what are we trying to achieve with them and i argue that uh, it's not primarily about um high-speed rail although that you know, there there can be a case for that, Um, about getting people who are already uh, able to travel uh, um, liberally, uh, getting them even faster to their destination. It's about rebalancing uh, the transport system in favour of those that have been excluded. And it has to be about decarbonisation. And we have to pay whatever that costs. Because if we don't pay whatever it costs... The costs of climate change will be are already upon us, and, and will just grow ever larger and ever more unmanageable. There won't be an economy to speak of unless we can decarbonise the uh, transport system and everything else incredibly rapidly. Um, so we have to we have to think very very differently about the transport system and what it's capable of um, and what it's for, and that includes, for example, thinking about. Are a lot of the journeys that are made even necessary. We have to think about um, how we're going to get planes out of the sky. There is no net zero carbon plane solution technology available, so so we have to think about how people are going to get to, for example, uh, from London, from England to Scotland, uh, from Britain to the rest of Europe without flying, uh, and we're going to have to do it now. We don't. We can't wait ten years for the government to come up with some. Uh, plan which may or may not come about.
1: And that's I think a really key point, right? Not being able to wait for government to sort these things out necessarily. Mm. Um and so I was really pleased in the book that you talk about the role of kind of the general public. Um and obviously this book is primarily addressed to um, the people on the trains. Um, So what kinds of political activism by the general public um, have worked to improve rail, could work? Um, What can we think about, given that sort of waiting around for the government to come up with a great plan is probably not a good idea?
2: So the the, uh, the, the first thing to say on that, I think, is that yeah, I, I agree. I don't. If you look at the history of what's happened on the railways, successive governments of all parties have, have failed to grasp grasp the nettle in terms of uh, really starting to provide a railway system that we need. Um, and if you look at the um, uh, the current government spending plans, that would suggest uh, even more cuts. Uh, and f- from what I can see at the moment. Uh, the Labour Party are making a lot of noises that they're going to follow a quite a similar um, level of, of spending um, spending cuts um, so this this is a situation uh, like many others in, in which ordinary people can't really look to the next election for solutions although we're obviously hoping that um, some are provided it's the the fundamental uh, political uh, issues are, won't be decided through the ballot box they, they'll be decided by um in, in many different parts of social services the, the the service users themselves and the people that work in them um but it's the people that work in them that arguably have some of the most power so uh very significant strikes happening now um and the outcome of which is completely uncertain uh but will be massive in terms of what happens in the railways. So um, if it's really true that the government really do want to close all of the ticket offices, uh, then uh, the RMT and the other unions winning that strike to prevent that happening is massively important. Um, passengers, So railway workers have that power to be able to inflict economic damage on, on the economy. Uh, and on the government. So it was estimated that three days of national strikes recently cost the economy £90 million. Um, What's less well reported is that the uh, government also has to compensate the private train operating companies uh, for all of the strike days. So it's costing the government directly millions of pounds uh, every day that the strikes are happening. Um, So you can see how the railway workers do have that potential to force an elected government's hand. Um, Railway passengers are are in not quite such a strong position. Uh, We don't have that collective identity. You know, if I meet my fellow uh, passengers on the train, I don't know who they are. We all live in different parts of the country, probably never going to see any of them ever again. Uh, It's very difficult to organise. But in the book, I do show that there are some opportunities to Uh, join that fight that the rail unions are leading. Um, And one of those is something called a fare strike, which is basically a strike by passengers. Uh, This has been tried a few times in in different countries, and it usually actually works quite well, although it's quite a potentially dangerous tactic, so you have to be quite careful. But my favourite example is from South Yorkshire in 2014, where uh, there was... um, a plan by the local authorities to get rid of free travel for disabled people uh, and for older people. Uh, And um, the Trade Council, which is a a group of trade unions, uh, called a meeting, a public meeting in Barnsley, and 300 people showed up and they they decided from that meeting that they were going to use the passes which formally allowed them free train travel. uh, And they were going to use them to travel uh anyway whatever anyone said uh and they were re- refusing to pay for the what was what used to be free so they went to Barnsley station in their their hundreds and, and just got on a train and the one member of staff there didn't know what to do and just had to let them on eventually more and more police turned up as they kept coming back each each week uh and um Eventually, uh, some of the protesters were arrested and they they weren't uh, found guilty in the end, but it was quite a troubling event for them. Um, But what they managed to win in that time was free travel back for disabled people. Uh, And they they managed to win back 50% of the um, free travel for older people too. So a very significant win in a period of austerity in a period of that Cameron government, which was bearing down on local authorities uh, spending. Um, And that's just one example. There, there are lots of others from around the world. So if, if, if passengers want to do something other than just cheer on the RMT uh, and visit picket lines, which is very important, then they, they can, there is a potential to organize in that way and refuse to pay. Uh, And that, The effect of that's mostly publicity, of course, because it's that that incident didn't cost the train company that much money. But it shows an organized level of resistance by passengers who most of the time don't have any collective voice. And we probably need to find ways of passengers having that collective voice and and doing things together like that's probably very important, I think.
1: Well, I know that um, reading that particular section of the book was one of the instances where I was particularly surprised as a reader. Um, That wasn't a protest that I had, for example, been aware of. Um, And it was quite cool, really, to see um, that these sorts of things were possible, particularly given um, how much we tend to focus on the unions, um, and that that's kind of where a lot of the attention comes. Um, So I know I was surprised reading that as a reader. But obviously, you've been invested in these issues for much, much longer than simply me reading this book. And I was wondering if there's anything you came across in the the research or writing of this book that was surprising to you that you'd be able to share with us?
2: What's what surprised me the most, I think, in, in doing the research, um, which is very much focused on the railways, was, was how much more important, if you like, um, the situation on buses is. So um, many more people use the buses as compared to trains. Some people never use the trains. And the situation with buses is even worse than it is on the railways. So I think sometimes the railways gets a, Uh, too much of a focus in terms of um, the overall picture. The reason why I had to look into that was I was trying to think about, well, my criticism of government policy over many years, it's not just that they were trying to uh, cut money all the time, cut uh, subsidy, but also they didn't seem to have a clue what they wanted the railways to do. Uh, And I think to answer that question, What should the railways be for and what sort of services they should provide? You have to think of the railways as part of a greater public transport system. And so this question of the buses, um, it looms large. And and something like 70% of the the bus uh, routes in England have been cut in the past 10 years. Um, So again, the social isolation is there. But we do see uh, on the bus side of things, uh, new movements around um, public control that have been quite successful, one one of them being in Greater Manchester, but also similar movements happening in in, in Yorkshire uh, and in Scotland too. Um, And so I think in terms of passenger activism, it's not just, we can't just narrowly think about the railways. It has to be a broader discussion, uh, which includes uh, other forms of public transport too. Um, and to bring um, different types of communities which rely on different types of public transport together. Um, so it's a funny thing, I guess, to say that if I've, I'm promoting a book on railways to say, actually, buses are more important. But I think... you're in some ways you have to study one to really realize the importance of the other.
1: Hmm. That is quite interesting. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And then as my last question, really, this book has literally just come out. So it feels a little bit mean to ask you about this, Um, but you've kind of, I don't know, maybe buses are next. Is there anything you're working on next um, once this book is done that you can share a sneak preview of?
2: Well, things I'm working on at the moment, uh, some some longer term stuff, is is mostly around um, the political economy of um, driving and cars, um, especially some some aspects of it which I think uh, aren't very well recognised. Um, I guess in the academic literature, or they're not really discussed in the media. So, um, one one of the phenomenon that that I've uh, One of the phenomena that I've witnessed uh, as someone who lives in in England, I live in Manchester, is this incredible proliferation of uh, SUVs, sports utility vehicles, the larger cars uh, that used to be off-road but they don't most of them can't go off-road anymore and just these bigger and bigger cars appearing britain's famously uh, like other european countries very different for example to the united states where cars cars always tended to be quite big um but it, these just um all these cars and you think well this is this has been at a time where this hasn't been at a time where uh people's incomes have massively increased. Most people's incomes have massively increased. So why have we got all these more expensive, bigger, more dangerous polluting vehicles? Um, And I think um, that's related to new forms of um, car finance, um, which have have come around, and these things called personal contract purchases, which is now how most people get a car. And they're basically... um, new ways for car manufacturers to lend people more money to buy even more expensive cars. Uh, And the process behind them is not well known at all. Um, But actually, people are becoming even more, uh, ever more indebted to buying uh, new cars uh, all the time, new, more expensive, bigger cars, Um, and, and actually finding them Quite often finding themselves in financial trouble as a result. So I'm interested in um, this issue of uh, what's called in transport studies car dependency, uh, which really is probably one of the biggest issues now in terms of uh, decarbonisation. So. Um, as I was saying earlier, that the the electricity generation systems massively decarbonized, Like the coal power stations have all but closed, uh, and and renewables have got cheaper and more efficient, um, and and so we've there's been a, a significant success. There's a long way to go, but in terms of decarbonising electricity uh, uh, generation, but th- this hasn't been in any way reflected in the transport system, and. Uh, electric vehicles unfortunately aren't aren't the solution because um, if you were to replace all of the diesel and petrol cars with electric vehicles we'd have to have a massive upgrade of the entire ele- electricity network uh, it wouldn't be able to cope uh, it would use uh more lithium in the batteries uh, than is actually available in in the world um, and um it still wouldn't solve the problem of decarbonisation because of all the carbon that would be required to do all the mining for all, all the production uh, of, of those batteries. Um, so unfortunately, it's not a solution. And we, we need to therefore sort of prioritise electric vehicles for where it's impossible to, to have public transport solutions. Britain is a densely... Um, Populated country that's the sixth richest country in the world. It's not a country uh, where electric vehicles are, are going to be the main solution. Um, so, so the, the problem is, though, and we've seen this in in terms of, um, especially in London, uh, where they've tried to uh, bring in measures that reduce um, car movements for, um, in favor of people walking and cycling, for example. Huge, uh, significant backlash. Uh, organised by uh, movements which have, have put public authorities on the back foot. And it's, so it's um, not necessarily politically popular to, to do these things. And, and one of the reasons is that so many people are so dependent on their cars. Um, so this issue of car dependency I think is massive and it's, it's gone nowhere in terms of progress uh, over the past few years. In fact, it's probably got worse. So we have to drill down into why it is. And we have to be sympathetic, I think, to the people that... Um, uh, my household has got a car, so for example. Um, we have to be sympathetic to, to the way people live their lives, the difficulties they have, uh, and the means by which they have to access alternatives. That doesn't mean just allowing uh, the state of affairs to continue what it does mean is, is really understanding how and why people are, are driving so much and, and what we can do to very quickly help them uh, live in an alternative way, which is actually sustainable.
1: Fascinating um, and sort of adds to the idea of looking at the whole ecosystem, right? Trains, buses, cars, etc. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And for telling us about your book, which again, for listeners, is titled Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways, just out in 2022 from Manchester University Press. Dr. Tom Haynes-Doran, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed
1: talking to you.